Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Back to Talking Tudors, episode 130. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month, I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in September. A very warm welcome to SH Gwinnett, EJ, Kay Doyle, Danny. Haynes, Claire, welcome to Becky and Joanne and Renee, Sandy, Dawn, T and Susan. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune in to every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website on thetudortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. October's prize is a copy of my hearty commendations, the transcribed letters and remembrances of Thomas Cromwell by Caroline Angus. Thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Gareth Russell about Catherine Howard and the Tudor Queens. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, notebooks and apparel. New items will also be added over time. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Valerie Schutte back to the show to discuss her new book, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange. Valerie has published widely on royal Tudor women, book dedications and queenship. Her first monograph is Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications, Royal Women, Power and Persuasion. Her second monograph, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange, was released with ARC Humanities Press in April 2021. She has edited or co-edited four volumes on Mary I, Shakespeare and Queenship, 
of which the Palgrave Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens won the 2020 Royal Studies Journal Book Prize. She's currently working on a cultural biography of Anne of Cleves, is co-editing a two-volume series on Mary I in writing and literature, and is co-editing a collection of essays on the making and remaking of the queenships of Lady Jane Grey and Mary I. Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical interlude. I'm thrilled to be able to share with you 16-year-old Rose Byer's first single called The Lament of Anne Boleyn. It's written and performed by Rose Byers and accompanied by Aaron Jones. I do hope you enjoy it. Divorced from Catherine of Aragon, outraging the church. We were married, and I became his queen and mother and Henry loved her dearly but he still longed for a son and heir and I could not do it for him Jesus receive my soul oh Lord God have pity on my soul and so And was courting Jane Seymour He longed for her So he found a way To end his marriage with me Jesus, receive my soul O Lord God, have pity was tried before the angry crowd I begged and pleaded innocence 
Welcome back to Talking Tutors, Valerie. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me back. Yes, it's lovely to have you back on the show. It has been a little while since we've chatted. So would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, My name is Valerie Schutte, and I am an independent scholar who studies Tudor Queens. I completed my PhD at the University of Akron in 2014. Uh, since then, I've primarily engaged in studying and writing about books dedicated to and related to Tudor Queens. My first monograph came out in 2015, um, Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications, Royal Women, Power and Persuasion. And it's really strange now to see it cited in newer books that come out. It's like one of those dreams come true. But anyway, that's just a, a side note of how excited I am about that. And in that one, I explored dedications, uh, manuscript and printed books to Queen Mary I. Since then, I have edited or co-edited four other books. So the first was The Birth of a Queen, which was essays on the 500th birthday of Mary I, and that was with Sarah Duncan. I've edited Unexpected Heirs in Early Modern Europe. I've co-edited Forgotten Queens in Medieval and Early Modern Europe with Estelle Peronk, who I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with. And I've also edited the Palgrave Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens with Kavita Mudan Finn. And um, I'm in the middle of actually editing three more books because I'm a glutton for punishment on Mary the First. So a two-volume set on Mary and literature and writing, which will hopefully come out in 2022. And then a standalone volume on the making and remaking of the queenships of Mary I and Jane Grey. And uh, all of those will be co-edited with Jessica Hauer. Queen Mary is really the queen I'm most familiar with, and you'll probably see from my titles and interests. But I've actually published on all six of Henry's wives and Queen Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort. So I kind of span uh, all of the Tudor queens. And moving forward, my next monograph project is actually on Anne of Cleves. So I'm kind of all over the place, but I do love some Tudor queens. That's fantastic. And I'm so excited about your Anne of Cleves book. We were just chatting about that and I can't wait for that to come out. And it's really great also to see all this work on Mary the First because she's, you know, tends to be a little bit sidelined for her more famous half-sister, but it's, it's great, I think, all this new scholarship around her. There's really a lot of great scholarship coming out. I think there's ways that we've been finding out you can really push what's going for Mary the First. So for a long time, 
there was this idea of, you know, we just denigrate Mary the first. Elizabeth is great and Mary is terrible. And then in the last 10 or 15 years, we got some really good scholarship on, on Mary herself. And then even comparing Mary and Elizabeth, but still Mary's often found wanting because Elizabeth is so great. But now I think there's a big push to examine Mary in her own right and even apply methodologies that have previously been applied to Elizabeth and apply them to Mary and really learn some new things and uh, get a better understanding of the first Tudor queen. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we're actually today going to talk about your latest book, which is very exciting. And that's Princess Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange. So can you just tell us a little bit about this project? Sure. Uh, This project, I'm really proud of this book. It just came out in April of 2021. And it actually started out as an essay for of about 2000 words for the Women's Writers Online project. And I was just supposed to write about dedications by Princess Elizabeth. And as I was writing and writing and that 2000 word essay turned into 6000 words and I went, oh my gosh, I haven't even scratched the surface of what's happening here. I realized that there was something more to be done on Princess Elizabeth and her works and not her translations, which have been really looked at, but those dedications and the material cultural aspect of those books. So beyond that, I started noticing the interconnectedness of book dedications and translations by Princess Mary as well. So they, the both sisters were engaged in a lot of translating and literature and their translations and everything, they were kind of tied together in a way where they just couldn't be separated out. So the main crux of this book are the four translations that Princess Elizabeth completed from 1545 to 1547. And these she gave as New Year's gifts to Henry VIII, Edward VI, and two to her stepmother, Catherine Parr. So at the time, these translations were basically a show of loyalty. So she did these grand translations in these hand-embroidered books that you can find pictures of online, and they're beautiful, and they were really exquisite New Year's gifts. But it was odd in a way in that all of them had dedications accompanying them, which really kind of show Elizabeth's understanding of her place within the royal family. Because typically, dedications were given, you know, by authors, and especially in this period, typically men who were trying to approach a monarch or a patron for a position or money or something. But Elizabeth didn't need those things. You know, she was the daughter of Henry VIII, after all. But her position in the royal family was still pretty precarious. She was a younger daughter. She was bastardized at the age of three. So it's not like things were exactly in her favor. And the dedications give you a glimpse into her own perception and understanding of how she fit into the royal family. And how Mary fits in is as a comparison of each princess's literary achievements. Because now Elizabeth's dedications and translations are often understood as an extraordinary work of a gifted young woman destined for greatness. And she was, I mean, she was an extraordinarily talented young woman. But at the same time, Mary undertook translations at, you know, a similar age and even then a similar time. And hers were circulated at court and Mary's were printed and they were considered to be, they were also considered to be an achievement of an extraordinarily gifted princess. And sometimes we just kind of forget that they both undertook the same types of activities. And uh, to that end, Mary never dedicated her translations to anyone. They weren't gifts, they circulated at court. 
as achievements that her mother was proud of. You know, people were proud to have copies of these translations. So through the course of the book, I explore Mary and Elizabeth's princess era translations, uh, the New Year's gift exchange among the immediate royal family to show how Elizabeth's manuscript gifts fit in. And finally, I end with a comparison of the printings of each of the princesses' translations because that has a history all of its own. And again, they're so interconnected that they can't be separated out. So Elizabeth's translations to Catherine Parr of Marguerite of Navarre's The Glass of Sinful Soul was printed in 1548, the same year that Mary's translation of the Gospel of John was printed and put in the New Testament that was then put in all of the parishes in England. So with these printings, the princesses came to be understood in new public literary ways. And basically it all came out of some dedications and translations. So I really wanted to show how all of those things are interconnected and offer a good analysis of the sisters together instead of apart. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And and a lot of things that we normally don't hear about. So that's fantastic. But before we delve in a little bit deeper, I just wanted to ask you, so do you remember when you first became interested in the lives of Elizabeth and Mary and maybe what it was that inspired you to, to do some more research on these women? It was kind of a convoluted path. And so my first introduction to the Tudor Queens came through Anne Boleyn, which I think probably you and a lot of your listeners can relate to. When I was an undergraduate, I read a book about Anne Boleyn and I immediately became obsessed. It was one of those things where I was like, how have I never heard of this person before? How have I never heard of the Tudors and what else is there? So I started to read a lot on Anne Boleyn. When I went to do my master's, I did my thesis on Anne Boleyn's coronation because I just was really interested in her as a Tudor queen. But my interest in Mary actually came a little bit later. So when I was trying to find a dissertation project, I uh, approached my advisor and I said, I really want to write an academic book on Anne Boleyn and patronage and power. And he kind of said to me, well, that's not an academic project. That's about queens. You know, and I was really taken aback at how could you think that you can't write academically about Tudor queens. So I took a different approach. So I still stuck with Anne Boleyn for a little bit. I ended up with books and literature and how were these queens related to material culture and books that were given to them and books that were printed to them. And I started out with the six wives of Henry VIII that just kind of went Anne Boleyn and everybody had a couple. And then I realized that Mary had so many more as a queen. And that was kind of how I fell into Mary the first and ever, I haven't left her ever since, <laughs> but it was a, a long winding road, but it did kind of start with Anne Boleyn. And sadly, and what will be unpopular is that I'm not a huge Anne Boleyn fan anymore. I mean, she's great, but she's not my favorite Tudor queen anymore. So I do tend to favor Mary and now Anne of Cleves quite a bit too. Fabulous. I love how so many um, people often have a book as the kind of inspiration for their, their love of the Tudors, which is, which is great. I love that. So your book, as you've said, offers a comparison of these two famous Tudor queens as princesses as well. So what stood out to you about the early lives and why do you think their early years need to be more closely examined and together as you, as you've emphasized? You know, what really stands out to me about their lives as princesses is that Elizabeth was really in a precarious situation as Henry's second daughter. And I think it's something that gets overlooked. So a lot of times when you read about Elizabeth, she was a brilliant queen from age 25. 
But there was a lot of things that happened to her in her early life that were not so great, um, starting with being bastardized um, at age three. And Mary faced the same issues. Now she was bastardized at Elizabeth's birth and she'd already been uh, Henry's legal heir and really accepted as his heir for many years. And for many, she still was Henry's heir until the birth of Edward. And in that way, the sisters became entwined in each other's stories and they just can't be separated out and they don't have to be compared to judge one another, but how they each coped with that situation at the same time and with the same people in the same court setting, often in the same household and how things turned out very differently for both of them. There are also some literary achievements in the activities that they undertook as princesses, yet Mary's achievements are often downplayed, much in the same way that her queenship is downplayed and denigrated in comparison to Elizabeth. So I wanted to be able to give a comparison that was not a judgment or not finding one lacking, although probably I probably have a few sentences where I do think Elizabeth isn't as great as you know, sometimes modern interpretations make her out to be. But what interests me is not using Mary to elevate Elizabeth, but show how they shared a similar life experience. And in examining them together, it becomes apparent that Mary was really wealthier and more respected, while Elizabeth was often on the periphery. And sometimes we think of that in a reversed way, that Elizabeth was great while Mary was maybe a pariah, but it just wasn't the case. So I don't want to denigrate Elizabeth, but I want to show that neither woman has to be put down to favor the other one, that they were both very important Tudor women who started out their lives in a pretty rough situation and had to go through it together. Yeah, so much of what you've said really has struck a chord because I think we do the same thing with the the six women that became queen consorts, you know, we try and put one down and raise one up. And I think it's it's important to keep in mind they were human beings. So, you know, as yes. layered as that means and, and with good sides and bad sides. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the extant book dedications that Princess Elizabeth wrote. We'll just start with her and what they tell us about, sure. about her kind of early life and what things were like for her at that point. These dedications are really fantastic. I mean, you have to think that Elizabeth wrote them in starting in 1545, and she only would have been age 11. So when you read them, first of all, you're really struck with the quality, her linguistic capabilities, her handle on multiple languages. I mean, really, they are phenomenal pieces of literature, the translations, the dedications, material culture, they're just phenomenal books and manuscripts. Uh, there are four extant manuscript dedications written by Princess Elizabeth that still exist. There were actually at least two more, and they seem to have been lost. So there are some interesting travel narratives to London where people had seen the, the Royal Library, and there were they made mentions of seeing this book by Elizabeth to Henry VIII, but these at least two don't seem to exist. So, I mean, there's a chance that they disappeared. There's a chance they're in private hands or they just haven't been identified. So I don't know, but we know of four, we can get to four. Of the four that do exist, the first comes from 1545. It was actually dated December 30th, 1544, but it was a New Year's gift for 1545. She gave this to Catherine Parr, and it was a copy of Marguerite of Navarre's The Glass of the Sinful Soul. And this translation and dedication was given at the end of a very good year for Elizabeth. I mean, really 1544 was a great year. She was reinstated back into the succession, although still bastardized, but put into the succession. And her formal education was reinstated. 
So a lot of times this 1545 New Year's gift is kind of seen as her big re-entrance into the royal court. So here's this beautiful gift and, you know, it just kind of shows I'm here, I'm, you know, I'm educated and I'm really happy to be back in the royal family. And her dedication to Catherine Parr gives off a lot of that, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to be part of this. And she really shows how loyal she is to her father and stepmother. So in it though, ironically, Elizabeth wrote that she wanted Catherine Parr to keep it private as this is a private gift to you as my stepmother, uh, which we know did not happen as John Bale printed a version in 1548 and it went on to be printed several more times in the 16th century. Uh, then next year for New Year's 1546 at 12 years old, Elizabeth gave dedications and translations to both Catherine Parr and her father. Elizabeth's text to Catherine Parr was a translation of Jean Calvin, while the text to Henry VIII was actually a trilingual translation of Catherine Parr's own prayers and meditations. And in the dedication to her father, Elizabeth's tone is more deferential, while in the two dedications to Catherine Parr, Elizabeth appeals to her more as a maternal figure. So Elizabeth did know, too, how to write to her different audience and what that would get her as the daughter or stepdaughter of these two people. And what is really interesting about these 1546 New Year's gift translations is that Elizabeth embroidered the covers to be a matching set. So Henry's is um, red canvas with silver stitching and Catherine Parr's is blue canvas with red and silver stitching, but the stitching looks similar. They're similarly designed. And as Tudor gifts, New Year's gifts in the Tudor period were often displayed on buffet tables, those that were given to the monarch. So these would have been readily and easily identifiable as matching gifts from Elizabeth. And I think they would have been visually striking in that way, especially since so many other gifts to the monarchs tended to be money or coins or gold plate. I mean, these would have stood out as really ornate gifts by Elizabeth. And they would have added to their value as handmade gifts, as well as to Elizabeth's professions and the dedications themselves about her love of her family and her loyalty to them. Um, Elizabeth's only other extant translation with a dedication was given to Edward as a New Year's gift when he was king, but we don't actually know the year. So it's only dated December 30th. Most likely it was 1548, the first New Year's in Edward's reign. And this is because the New Year's gift exchange was actually abandoned from 1549 to 1551 as seen as something that adhered too much to old tradition. And then it kind of came back, but it seems like Elizabeth would have given this gift in 1548 to Edward. And Elizabeth's dedication to Edward is unique among the four as it is the shortest and really clearly meant for a, a child or at least, you know, a younger person, not a parent. Yet it really had the same meaning and that she gave it to him to show her affection and loyalty as well as her value to the family. And this would have happened maybe around the time of the Seymour affair. So she was really trying to make sure that Edward knew, you know, that she was friendly to him, that she understood her place as a tutor, that she was kind of sorry for everything that had happened and was really showing herself as a Protestant, even if maybe pushed by her tutors in that direction. But altogether, the four dedications really reveal a well-educated young woman who is self-aware that as a bastard second daughter, her place within the family was precarious. And she understood that. And she used her education and handmade gifts to 
appeal to her relatives and demonstrate her desire to be included in that family and not just considered the bastard younger daughter. Yeah, it's so sad that we've lost those other two. I wonder if they're in, as you say, some private collection somewhere. Wouldn't that be an amazing find? I am hope I am hoping that someone, you know, hears this or reads my book and reaches out and says, Oh, by the way, <laughs> I have that Elizabethan, you know, what that you've been looking for. I have oh. a dedication by her. And I will be so happy to chase it down anywhere. Yeah. So I really do mentioned- hope they're in private hands somewhere. Yeah. So you mentioned one just from the travel diaries and I love those travel diaries, by the way, they're, they're just fantastic. So that one was to her father, I think you said, do we know what the other one that's lost was? So I think they were both to her father and it is speculated that for 1546, we know that she gave Catherine and Henry translations together and they were embroidered together. So it is entirely possible that one of the lost was a 1545 to be paired with the first translation to Catherine Parr. I mean, that is not unreasonable that those would be paired together, that one maybe was a pair for that. So I'd like to think that somewhere out there, there's another New Year's gift translation, Um, but they were both to Henry. So I'm not sure. Likely one of them was not done before 1545. So I'm thinking she was not younger than 11 when she did it, but you know, I, I just can't speculate a whole lot. I think one of them is in French. That's about as far as we, as we, the the first line of the dedication has been preserved and it's in French to, to my Lord and, you know, my Lord and King Henry VIII. So, but that's that's about all we know. Fingers crossed they turn up one day. That would be incredible. I know. (laughs) And, And what insights can we glean from Princess Mary's book dedications? Princess Mary actually never wrote any dedications. So she received quite a few. And I think that's what's really important partially about this comparison is that that's illuminating in and of itself is that it be it shows a telling difference between Mary and Elizabeth. So Elizabeth gave personal gifts of translations with these dedications kind of as an appeal. In a sense, she used her pen, you know, for self-representation, which she is famous for doing even as a queen. Um, while Mary engaged in the more traditional feminine practice of translation as part of her education, and then later as part of the New Testament project. But Mary, in this way, we understand that Mary did not have to engage in making dedications. There was no one she had to appeal to. So she might've been a bastard daughter herself, but she was significantly older. She was ahead of Elizabeth in terms of the succession. For many, she was still the succession anyway, even you know before Edward came along. So she was in some ways just seen more legitimate, even though she had the same legal status as Elizabeth. So these differences, I mean, they really point to how Elizabeth was astute and aware that she needed to make dedications with her translations, but it also shows that Mary just didn't have to. And I think those are just really important distinctions. Like sometimes what isn't there is just as important as what is there. So Mary never really had to politicize her translations even though for both of them, you know, as the printings happened later in the 16th century, both of their translations and, dedic- and dedications to them and books to them could become politicized. Mary did not have to engage in that initially in the same way that Elizabeth did. Yeah, that's really interesting. It does really show that she was more obviously confident in her position and secure in her position, doesn't it? And, and Elizabeth obviously was aware that hers was a more precarious situation. Yeah, yeah. I think they're just really illuminating for for that. I mean, they, 
were in the same situation, but Mary's was more secure than was Elizabeth's. And Elizabeth was aware of that and made, you know, steps to try to remedy that. Yeah, that's that's interesting because we always see Elizabeth, obviously, when she's queen later on as such a confident um, ruler. And this brings a different side to her out into the light, I think. I think so. I think she was probably still a very confident young woman and knew that she had lots of abilities. But I do think this maybe gives us a little bit more well-rounded of how some of her behaviors as princess, and you're right, she just needed to do a little bit extra, you know, whereas queen, we just think of her as all powerful and amazing. And then, but as princess, it just wasn't quite that easy, you know, and she had to do things like give her parents or her step parents, you know, really handmade ornate gifts and kind of say, I want to be here. I don't want to be demoted anymore. I understand, but, you know, please don't cast me out. And, and I want to be part of the tutors. Yeah, obviously with her mother being executed as a, a traitor and whatnot, um, uh, you know, she obviously had a little extra work extra work to do. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, there is a, an awful theory. I try not to, uh, I, I put it in some footnotes in the book, but I try not to engage in it. And that uh, because of her, her mother and the trials around her, you know, that possibly Elizabeth had a stigma of incest, even though most people don't believe Anne Boleyn and, you know, engaged in those affairs. Um, so, you know, was this part of, in the dedication to her father, there's lots of lines of, I'm just like you, you know, and is that a, and some people read a little bit more into it. Like, is that because she's trying to say, yes, you're my dad, you know, my mom yeah. uh, didn't sire me with Mark Smeaton, or is she just saying, I'm like the tutors, you know, I'm educated, I'm, you know, I'm part of the family, I have the same characteristics as Margaret Beaufort, you know, I'm interested in religion, I'm interested in learning, and I'll do you proud, you know, which I Mm. kind of, I lean more a little bit more that way, instead of trying to prove her parentage. But I mean, there, there might have been with her mother a little bit of, you know, she had maybe had to work a little bit harder than Mary did. Absolutely. And you've already mentioned that obviously they received many dedications and books as well. So um, in terms of printed books and manuscript dedications to Elizabeth and to Mary, what do these tell us about the authors and how the Tudor sisters were perceived by their contemporaries? These books to me are, this is what I'm most fascinated in. This is, you know, kind of what got me into this. And altogether over the course of their lifetimes, Mary and Elizabeth received more than 250 printed book and manuscript dedications. Now, before becoming queen, Mary only received 19 and Elizabeth only received seven. So, I mean, these primarily came as they were queens, not prior to their queenships. And as you can imagine, with Mary's reign being five years and Elizabeth's reign being 45 years, Mary received only about 30 as a queen, whereas Elizabeth received something spectacular, like 180 and counting. You know, we still don't know all of the manuscripts that have been dedicated to Elizabeth. Um, And if you wanted to have that in a little bit of comparison for Edward, before he became king, now he did a seat at nine, but before he became king, he received five. So the fewest of the three Tudor siblings. The authors and types of books that were given to the sisters did vary greatly. Um, With Mary receiving more books focused on virtue and education, she was really a bit more prepared or perceived of from outside audiences as learning to be, you know, a princess. I don't think there was lots of expectation that she would be queen whenever she was a child, but, you know, really 
preparing. And as we know, her mother was so involved in her education and got some of these really incredible humanists to give her textbooks. So we see a lot of that in books dedicated to Mary before she was queen. Both sisters also received books on religion. And unsurprisingly, those to Mary were focused on traditional Catholic religion, and those to Elizabeth were more evangelical in nature. And what is the same for both sisters is that they really only received book dedications when they were in favor. So Mary um, received lots of dedications in the 1520s when she was Henry's only living child. And then again in the 1540s and 50s when she was kind of reinstated back in favor at court and more visible. And for Elizabeth, she only received one dedication while her father was living, and the other six came when Edward was living. And it's likely because, you know, she maybe had a closer relationship with Edward or Elizabeth was more at court or visible or in favor at that point. But what I think is fascinating is that the sisters did receive, both of them received a dedication in the same book. And this is one of my absolute favorites. So there was a man named Giles Duess, who was the French tutor to Henry VIII and his siblings, and who was the French tutor to Mary. So he traveled with her to the Welsh marshes in 1525, and he was part of her household. And he prepared a French textbook for her in 1524 as part of her studies of French. Well, this book was then printed in 1533 at Mary's behest. And it's divided into two books. So book one is dedicated to Mary, and book two is dedicated to Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and Princess Elizabeth. So the book dedicated to Mary, that dedication is pretty straightforward, and that portion of the book is on grammar. And then on the portion of the book that's dedicated to Henry and Anne and Elizabeth, those were dialogues in French that a person could practice. And Mary was written into a lot of those dialogues because this book was originally written for her. And it's interesting to see in this volume that her title and status have been demoted to lady and things. Whenever in the original, she probably would have been princess. But I just really like this dedication because it kind of shows the ways too in that authors and patrons and tutors also had to navigate the interconnectedness of the sisters and the royal family and not say anything bad or step on anyone's toes or give people the wrong title. So this was a balancing act from a lot of different perspectives. And even people very close to the tutor court had to engage in this. And this is one example in a dedication, how people had to engage in treating the sisters together, but separate, but not equal, but kind of equal. And every, you know, and everybody's in a precarious situation. It, it just never ends. And Giles Duess never was Elizabeth's French tutor. He actually died in 1535. So instead, her French tutor was Jean Balmain. And he actually became really integral in some of the dedications, in the French dedications that Elizabeth then gave to Henry and Catherine. And he even gave dedications to Elizabeth. So, I mean, the cycle of how these things are interconnected, you know, is really interesting and how they kind of all fit together for these two young ladies and princesses. But in terms of perceptions of the princesses as revealed in these dedications, both sisters really received generic praise for their virtue and piety. I mean, this was common among all dedications to women and royal women, but that's really where the similarities end. So Mary receives more than double the amount of pre-accession dedications than Elizabeth did. And these approached her really as a prominent Catholic woman who had a role to play in the religious settlement. While those to Elizabeth were more or less, they just kind of examined her as a virginal royal lady. 
And they didn't put as many expectations on her as to what she would achieve or as to what a printed dedication out in the world would have an impact on her reputation or even the reputation of the book moving forward. Do you think part of that is because they they really didn't, didn't expect that she would ever come to the throne? I think so. I mean, I, I often think that if Edward is king and Mary is next in line and Elizabeth is third, I mean, there couldn't have been that much expectation that the first, the other two tutors would not, they were both, well, Edward wasn't an adult, but he had lived through his childhood. There would have been no reason to assume that neither one of them would have married or had children of their own. So I don't think, you know, when Elizabeth is uh, in the 1540s, when she's 12 or 15, I don't think there's lots of expectation that she'll become queen. So they, uh, dedicators appeal to Elizabeth as a royal lady, but not necessarily as someone they're going to cling to as they ride to the future of England. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I'd never heard about that book dedication to the whole family. So that that's really exciting. I'm, I, I'll have to um, quiz you more on that later. <laughs> I want to I want to. Um, so you've mentioned a few times this New Year's gift giving practice. So just for our listeners, in case they haven't heard too much about it, can you tell us a little bit about this practice, what it meant and, and why people did these gifts, the lavish gifts? Sure. So in the Tudor period, gifts were not exchanged at Christmas. They were exchanged at New Year's. The New Year's tradition was that for the monarchs anyway, for the Tudor court, it became incredibly important as a court ritual and not just, I'm going to give you a gift because we're friends. But in many ways, it was a very public ceremonial practice in that if you wanted to remain close to the king, you had to engage in And there were expectations of, if I give you a gift, you give me something in return. So if these, if courtiers or the royal family gives the monarch a gift, it's expected that there'll be a reward. So it was a very lucrative time in terms of both getting a reward, but if you're giving a book, you know, the monarch in a way has to acknowledge that you gave them this book. So it was, it created bonds between members of the monarchy, the royal family and other courtiers, and sometimes even strangers who, you know, would come and give the monarch gifts. A variety of gifts were given. The most popular was definitely money and gold plate. Uh, Books were given to all of the tutors, but that was definitely not the most prominent gift given. And sadly, there aren't that many gift roles left. So the, there are physical roles that exist where on one side of the role, it is listed from Henry VIII and the royal family down what he gave to these people. And on the back side of the list would be all those same people and what he received from them. And we just don't have too many of those roles left. But we, from what we do have, we can find some really interesting patterns. So Mary often exchanged gifts with gifts with her father and his wives. And these tended to be expensive as she just had deeper pockets than Elizabeth did. So she gave jewelry, embroidered cushions, gold plate items, money. And in her privy purse expenses, you can see the preparations up to New Year's. So paying so-and-so to make a salt for a gift. And we might not know who that goes to, but we know how many ounces it was and that it was meant to be a New Year's gift down the line. Elizabeth, on the other hand, has not left the privy purse expenses. So we are often left in the dark. So we just have these roles during Henry's reign. And if it's listed what Elizabeth gave on the roles, 
Now, because she cannot often afford otherwise, her New Year's gifts tended to be handmade. So this falls in line with the translations and dedications we've already seen. But then there's also evidence that she handmade Edward some shirts when he was a baby because she could. So she gave gifts that she could do herself that maybe weren't expensive, but that she put her own hands into. And interestingly, as Elizabeth moved forward to be queen, she really preferred handmade gifts. So in her New Year's roles as queen, there are lots of gifts that were handmade and often the plate and coins and things were immediately put into the Royal treasury. They were used. A lot of them were regifted. They were real big on regifting, but the ones that were handmade, she tended to keep and really value. So it was something that she started, I think as a princess, because it was her only means of giving a gift to someone. And then she just learned to love, you know, the symbolism of a handmade new year's gift. And really crazy is that there's no evidence that Elizabeth ever gave Mary a handmade New Year's gift. So that doesn't mean she didn't, but we have no evidence that she gave her a translation, a book, a shirt, anything. And it strikes me as odd because the two girls were actually kind of close when Elizabeth was a princess. We do see in Mary's Privy Purse account, you know, that she gave things to Elizabeth, that she paid for things, that she wrote to her father about how precocious Elizabeth was. But I think moving forward, as we get to the 1540s and 1550s, it shows that their relationship shifts. So Elizabeth gave handmade translations to her father and stepfather and brother because she was really trying to find her place in the family and her value and how she fit in as the younger sister. But she never really had to fit in that same way with Mary. She never had to appeal to her for patronage. She never had to appeal to her for protection. So she did not give her, as far as we know, the same type of gift with the same type of meaning. So interesting. I'm, I totally love the um, New Year's gift rolls. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with seeing the gifts. And I know that Elizabeth, later in her reign, loved getting clothing. So there was lots of gifts of clothing for Elizabeth later on, which is so interesting. And interesting as well that you were talking about the book dedications and how they, of course, they were receiving those at times when they were in favor. And I I just love what the New Year's gifts tell us about a person's, you know, position at court and whether they were in favor or out of favor. I'm just thinking of popping straight into my mind is, um, of course, the years that Mary and Elizabeth, uh, sorry, Mary and her mother, Catherine, received nothing from the king. Uh, So that big blank space on the gift roll is quite, it's quite um, powerful, I think, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's again, one of those things of what is not there is just as telling as what is there. So if you're not in favor, you don't get the gifts. You know, Henry famously sent Catherine's back no, thank you. You know, I I don't want to engage. It's too public. It's too, if I accept it, I'm expected to give you something back. We can't have that relationship anymore. You know, so Elizabeth knew that if she gives these ornate gifts and she presents them to her father and they're presented, you know, they're on the buffet, that they really made a statement. You know, so there was so much more to New Year's gifts than here's just a gift. There was no such thing as just a gift. Yeah, and I think there are some uh, occasions where Elizabeth rejected gifts as well. And I imagine how terrified the poor giver would have been when their gift returns. Absolutely. I would not want to be the person who received my gift back. No, I'm looking forward to my little reward on the other side. Not a note that said she didn't want this. Oh, gosh, I know. Don't shoot the messenger, as they say. Poor messengers. I always feel for them. Oh, (laughs) seriously. So just to wrap this up, I'd love to know what impact do you think Mary had on Elizabeth's queenship? I think this is a really loaded question. And the short answer for me is a lot. 
So I know that's a really cop out, but it's a lot and not in the negative way as is often portrayed. So I think a lot of times we read or see, oh, Mary had such an impact on Elizabeth. She learned not to get married. And I don't think that's the case. I think this is another area where we can look at the sisters together and not judge them against one another, but learn and appreciate that Mary had to go through a lot that Elizabeth would have learned from. And some of those things were as basic as Mary going to her first parliament and taking charge and how a queen regnant could approach a council, could approach parliament, could affect change politically, could give proclamations that spoke her own mind yet were for the good of her people. I think another lesson Elizabeth would have learned from Mary maybe was caution. So she did see what her sister did and thought I could do things, some things that way, and maybe I won't. But not, again, not necessarily in a bad way, just that's not how I would approach that situation. But politically, Mary did pave the way. I mean, she had all of the legal impediments removed or smoothed out. She was the first king and queen in the same body. She was the first to talk about England as whenever she's at the Guildhall speech during Wyatt's Rebellion, these are my people, these are my children, I'm not a mother, but I will love you like one. And, you know, when you think of that kind of language, you think of the Tilbury speech with Elizabeth. So, I mean, there are lots of positive things that Elizabeth took from that lesson before her, that queen before her. And I think a lot of times it gets judged negatively is because the last year or so of Mary's reign tends to overshadow the first few years. So we look at 1557 and think, uh, Calais and all of these martyrs who were, you know, Protestants or heretics who burned. And, and during Elizabeth's reign, that really solidifies with the Acts and Monuments book. And you kind of look back and think, what good came out of that? But really, I think Elizabeth would have learned caution and navigation and how to preside over men effectively Um, You know, while they're kind of challenging her authority all around her. And yeah, I think there was a lot. I think there's, there's just a lot that she learned from Mary. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think lots of positive stuff, as you say, and we, and, you know, I want to hear more about that. I think um, Elizabeth was such a keen observer. She just observed everything and and soaked in all those lessons. And and it's great to know that she um, learned a lot from her sister and I, I love, um, thank you for mentioning that speech that Mary did, because I don't think we hear a lot about the fact that, of course, that language was first produced by Mary and for Mary's reign. And then Elizabeth so aptly adapted it for herself as well. Yes. And we see, too, when you think of the Tilbury speech, you know, Elizabeth in her armor and in front of her troops. And really, Mary did that twice. So she did it at the beginning of her reign when Jane Grey tried to make the coup. You know, Mary was with her troops in Norfolk saying, okay, we're going to go take the capital and let's do this. And then again, when Wyatt came to London in 1554, she never left. She gave her speech and she said, you know, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be head on and I'm going to take control. And, you know, Elizabeth did those same things later on. And maybe it was a Tudor trait. Henry VIII seemed to be pretty, you know, hands-on and he was going to lead his troops into battle as well. And both girls seemed to learn it from him. And Elizabeth certainly had a role model in Mary doing it as a woman and how that could be navigated, the martial aspects of kingship and queenship and how how hard it would have been for a woman to navigate 
those roles. Absolutely. And I can see why you'll, you've, you know, written and edited all those books. It's such a fascinating, <laughs> a fascinating year. I tend to stick more to Henry VIII's reign, but I can understand that there's plenty in the, um, the other Tudor monarchs as well, which is so interesting. Now, one more thing, Valerie, that I would like to ask you, and that is for a Tudor takeaway. So as you know, I like to provide my listeners with something to go off and explore after the show. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I do. And I hope that some of your listeners can get here. And sadly, I am not one of them because of all of this awful COVID business. But the British Library is putting on an exhibition from October 2021 to mid-February 2022 called Elizabeth and Mary, Royal Cousins, Rival Queens. Now, it's not my Mary. It's the Mary Queen of Scots. But it's an amazing exhibition where the British Library is showcasing some amazing Tudor treasures from letters exchanged between Elizabeth and Mary, accounts of Elizabeth's heart and stomach of a king's speech, eyewitness accounts of Mary's execution. And I think that these documents and things would be amazing to see. So I'm hoping that some of your listeners are able to get there. And for those who can't make it, like me, there are a series of online lectures that are taking place throughout the time that it's going to be held at the British Library. So some of them will be given by the curators, Susan Doran and Paulina Cuse, who are amazing scholars, and then others by John Guy and and Amy Blakeaway. So I think that your listeners should check those out and at least look at the website for the British Library and the exhibition, see if they can get their hands on a catalog, because I'm sure that something amazing will come out of that, and try to take advantage of the uh, online lectures. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I was just having a look at that the other day and thinking, oh, how I wish I could get there and be there in person. Me too. And it is great, though, I have to say that um, all the online lectures and online material that has come out of this tragic situation that we're all in is at least a kind of silver lining in a way that we've got lots of uh, lots of stuff to watch and listen to. I, I think for me, it has been. I think that's been the silver lining, especially I'm in the States. So I've I've always been not able to get to as many things in the UK as I would have liked. So you're right. The one silver lining of this has been with the availability of online lectures and conferences. I've really been able to do and participate more than I would be normally. So, I mean, I am happy with that, even though I really, really do hope to see an actual library with my own eyes (laughs) soon. But I am happy to at least be able to participate and engage with other scholars on these things and listen to really phenomenal lectures and Uh, participate. And I do kind of hope that after this all ends, some of that stays, you know, so we can still remain connected and engaged from all over the globe on these really fascinating topics. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm committed to staying for the long run and bringing as many, you know, fascinating talks like this one. Thank you so much, Valerie, for coming back on the show and sharing your expertise so generously. And I hope I can lure you back to talk about Anne of Cleves later on. Oh, I, you will have no problem. I'm sure I will love to talk Anne of Cleves with you. All right. Well, thank you again for talking Tudors with us. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all 
all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music